0: Welcome to Episode 127 with my guests Michael Rosbrook, Joel Schwartz, and Amir and Melvin Tillis as we focus on the dynamics between Holocaust survivors and their offspring. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads for medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. MentalPod is also the Twitter name you can follow me at. And uh, go check out the website. There are surveys you can take there. You can see how other people uh, responded to the surveys. You can join the forum. And uh, you can support the show uh, financially. You can read blogs by me and other people. Uh, all kinds of good stuff. Um, Let's get right into it. Uh, oh, um, somebody had sent me a uh, an email about a website called uh, GoodRx.com, and uh, apparently they offer discounts on prescriptions for places like Walmart and, and other places. And uh, I think I might have mentioned it on a previous episode, but I think it'd be worth checking out. So it's GoodRx.com. Go, uh, go check it out. I'd like to know what... Uh, what you guys think of that? Uh, one also mentioned that, uh, I'm planning on coming to Toronto for, uh, a group recording on Friday, November 15th, and then a live, uh, recording with a single guest on Saturday afternoon, November 16th. So, um, mark that on your calendars, Canadians. Um, and, uh, there's a thread on the forum. Uh, a poll asking if you're going to plan on coming or not. Um, It's under the thread of, is a mental illness happy hour show um, near you feasible? And then there's a Toronto thread. So if you would go post it so I can get an idea how many people are going to come. All right. Some of you remember a uh, month or two ago, um, maybe even longer. Actually, I think it was longer. Um, I read a... Survey response from a guy who called himself Kiry Joe and um, he has been having um an incestuous relationship with his older sister that she initiated when they were children and um and he he was really afraid that he was going to be judged and when I read his survey and um he was he was touched by the warmth of um not only the the acceptance that I think I showed him, but the listeners as well, because they emailed me and um he thought people were gonna judge him and treat him like a like a freak, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been having a, a bit of a correspondence and um he started to go to therapy and so I told him that I would love to to get an update on how things are going. So um Joe, And and he was also suffering tremendous anxiety and isolating, and his sister was the only person he could relate to. And she had a boyfriend who he was then feeling jealous of, and he just didn't know what to do. So um, he updates me saying, uh, So I began going to therapy for the first couple of sessions. My sister came with me, but I quickly grew to trust my therapist. She was great, and we joked around, and she made me feel very comfortable. We focused on my social anxiety, and she quickly prescribed me some medicine to take. I didn't feel the effects of it until a few weeks ago, but when I did, I was so glad, especially after listening to your constant struggle with the efficiency of meds. So a few weeks ago, my therapist began asking about my relationship with my sister. I could tell she was, quote, on to me, so I came out with everything. I'm not sure if she was shocked, but she told me that she'd never dealt with such a long-lasting, incestuous relationship. It makes me sad that I still have not even heard of someone who's been in a similar relationship as me. Anyway, my sister and I no longer have a sexual relationship. I told her that I wasn't comfortable with her having a boyfriend whilst having an intimate relationship with me. I'd really like to thank your listeners who responded to my survey. I read and listened uh, to them again and again before confronting my sister. My sister broke down with tears and said that she only had a boyfriend to make herself feel normal. There are some details here that I would rather not mention, but we talked uh, for what seemed like hours and both agreed that we shouldn't have a sexual relationship anymore as it wasn't healthy for us. My sister always felt guilty that she initiated our incest, especially after I told her that my therapist said it did technically count as sexual abuse. However, I want to make it clear that we don't regret having the relationship we've had despite people saying I was abused. My sister broke up with her boyfriend last week. She told me that she does want to find someone who she can be as close to as she was with me. I hope that she does, although I do feel selfish for being jealous. I also can't help but feel guilty that I've been holding my sister back from having a normal relationship. Um, As I thought, I've been offered full-time employment down in London, but I've told them I'm having family issues and can't move yet. I've been talking recently with my therapist about moving, and she says I should wait until I'm more confident. I'm scared shitless about moving. I've been here for so long, and my sister is so nearby. I'm also worried about finding another therapist who I like as much as my current one. I will email you again after I've moved. I'm not sure when uh, that will be, but I hope you're still interested. The help from you and the whole of the MetalPod community has been overwhelming. Thank you. Um And uh, he he writes, P.S., I'd love to get some feedback from people again. It really helped me last time. I'm not sure how to do it, like Facebook or forum. And I would suggest, um, uh, Joe, to go to the forum and post a thread. Um, I think you've started one under Introduce Yourself here, um, but you can do it, uh, again, under there, or you can go to um one of the other one of the other threads maybe even under the thread for this week's episode um since people usually go there and that's under the discuss the podcasts and then that's broken down into um individual episodes so uh, send in a a big hug your way joe um congratulations on on starting the, the the process of of healing and um hopefully overcoming your your shame and um and your anxiety. Um to just read a quick little happy moment um and this is from somebody who calls themselves bored in borderline and uh she writes uh, one of the first times I re- oh um Her happy moment is talking in the sun on my parents' deck with my brother and my dad. An intellectual debate. One of the first times I remember thinking, my dad is interested in what I have to say as a grown-up human being. He is proud of us.
1: Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head.
0: Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own
2: career.
3: Wanting to die and...
2: To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) that is
3: very uncomfortable in my own body i ended up becoming a male prostitute
2: and what i became was an animal
0: they took away my shoelaces
2: i became chaos
0: like it hurts i just want to go i just want to leave you have no idea what a small part of your life this
3: is you go to a support group it's like creating a family that you didn't have
1: i mean life is one percent of
3: my body was abused 99%
1: judgment about that event.
0: But they couldn't touch the best parts of me.
4: But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does.
0: I'm here with uh, Joel Schwartz, uh, Michael Rosbrook, and uh, Mel tillis and his son amir and uh sure it's a chinese name mel uh is is uh not to be confused with the the country singer uh, mel (laughs) tillis and and mel you're how old how old i'm now
1: yeah i was born 29 so 85 so
0: you're over 18 we're safe here
1: uh, a little over 80.
0: Uh. <laughs> uh, Mel is a uh, Holocaust survivor. Amir is his son. Uh, Michael is the son of uh, a father who was a Holocaust survivor. And Joel is the grandson of, uh, was it your grandfather or grandmother who is oh. a, both uh, his grandparents were uh, Holocaust survivors? And um, I wanted to kind of explore the, the topic of the dynamics of. How it affects f- generations after the the survivors. Um, I'm going to probably do a separate episode with Mel because his story is um, very involved, and I don't want to um, minimize it here. Um, mm-hmm. So we may ask you to chime in about certain things, but I want this episode to be about how it has affected Amir and Joel and and Michael. Um, so I guess the first place to uh, start would be, uh, Joel, I'm going to pass the microphone to you. We we only have two microphones, so uh, I apologize that we're going to have to be passing them around. So Joel, uh, let the let the listener know uh, about you
4: and your background, etc. cetera. Thank you, Paul. Um, I am a, a clinical psychologist, a new one. And uh, part of uh, my... Requirements was to write a dissertation, and my dissertation advisor came to me with this idea of uh, the identity development and relationships and emotional lives of grandchildren of holocaust survivors and it immediately uh, interested me because I am one myself through my own experiences and the therapy that i 've gone through in my life. It's become very apparent how much of our family's uh, craziness, for lack of a better word, I can tie directly back to to that horrible time in history. Um, we we kind of joke in our family, among myself and my cousins, that it's impossible to beat a family function without somebody mentioning the Holocaust within about 10 minutes. Uh, it used to be a joke about our parents, but lo and behold, it's now a joke about us. Somebody will invariably... Say something <laughs> at some point. Will you know, call each other out. Hey, you did it. You did it. Um, and essentially, I, I interviewed about 10 people from my dissertation and learned so much about their experiences and, and how similar my own uh, was to theirs and i 've come to this conclusion that there 's almost a subculture that exists, and we kind of recognize each other right away and say, "Ah, yeah, you know your family has been through this too. I, I see that almost right away.
0: What are some of the dynamics that you noticed in um, the people whose parents or grandparents went went through that
4: yeah um, it 's a tough question to answer because so many there's so many levels of, of healing and communication about this among, uh, among every different family.
1: Poland, the Polish people were the worst, helping uh, so much because of the Poland. Ten percent of the uh, population was Jewish, over three million. I returned. I was liberated in uh, Czechoslovakia and Theresienstadt. You heard that was. Hitler show place. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I lost an eye. They removed my eye without anything. I was walking around from February 13th till May 5th with a piece of glass. Can you imagine? And then... uh, Dad, it,
2: uh why do you think that you were so orthodox, so observant of all the Jewish cultures and religion, but then when you came to America, you, you didn't um, decide to go the same direction as your parents, and didn't make us Orthodox and sent us to...
1: Well, why I didn't stay religious, Orthodox? Yeah. Well, I, that's a hard thing. I was brought up, and then I, I come from a family. They're uh, mostly uh, cantors and rabbis, but I don't. I really don't know. I'm completely changed. He, I. I don't believe it. It was a long time before I really could uh, settle down and believe that I am liberated, uh, and especially when I found my mother. She found me. Actually, uh, came in. And with my father, I was all the time together. And the sisters, they took away because they were much younger. They put them right in the gas
4: chamber. Oh, yeah. A trauma of that magnitude can permanently change uh, the way that you are in the world, the, way, the assumptions that you have about how the world works, and, and mm-hmm. religiously and philosophically. But I think you said the Polish people had it, particularly bad.
1: No, the Polish people did not behave nice.
4: No, I'm uh, saying that the Jews in Poland were particularly hurt by it, partially because their neighbors were so anxious to turn them in. And when you're betrayed oh, by no. your loved ones and your neighbors, the, the very, trauma is so uh, much worse and the healing process requires the next so much day more. I uh,
1: returned I go in the streetcar in Krakow And next to me sits a a lady. And she says, look at that. They said they killed all the Jews. Look how many are back. Hmm. I says, how can you tell a Jew? Oh, I can spot a Jew a mile away. (laughs) I says, really? I I got something in my eye here. (laughs) She looks in. I says, I don't see anything. I am a Jew. Wow! He said, what? Uh, I spoke a perfect Polish. Uh, the Polish people were absolutely uh, uh, here. Yeah. Uh, uh, with the with the church teaches thou should not kill, but if it's a Jew or a Gypsy, it's okay. Uh, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. <laughs> and my father was. Uh, a Polish Army in First World War. He had a higher decoration, with tutti militari. Uh, he used to, uh, especially a Jew, didn't... Uh, he walked in. He, somebody told him dirty Jew, he had to pick his teeth uh, up. He was a strong man. Without him, I wouldn't have survived. Honestly. <laughs> he, he had to shave the hair. He walks up to these two guys. Uh, he had beautiful, all white hair. He says, he feels very bad without hair. can I keep mine? He says, oh, yeah. They respected the chutzpah. <laughs> uh, oh, without him, I wouldn't have survived. He was absolutely. Uh, it's really unbelievable. And that's why I appreciate life. Every time I walk into Jack in the Box, <laughs> I say, thank you, dear God, I live the day when I'm hungry. Yeah, I can eat.
4: It's such a g- great gift. Uh. I wrote about this stuff from a about what's called an attachment perspective, uh, not to be confused with uh, attachment parenting and that kind of fad that we hear about. Um, but the basics of attachment is that the parent's ability to really attend to the needs and emotional life of their children directly affects their children's ability to function later on. And when one is so traumatized that any sort of emotional expression in the house is triggering that trauma or um, too powerful for you to respond to in a compassionate and validating way, it can really hurt the next generation. And that even that hurt can be passed down to the third generation, as, mm-hmm. as I have both experienced and studied.
0: Uh, this would be a perfect time to slide the mic over to Michael. Um, And talk about his relationship with his his father. And
1: Um,
0: give us a little story about about your – a little background about your your father and then your your relationship and that dynamic.
3: Uh, That relationship, even to this day, and my father's passed about 17, 18 years, was a love-hate relationship. Uh, I mean, growing up, uh, I was the firstborn. You know, my father came over here on a child quota boat in uh, nineteen forty from, from Poland Lutz Poland. yeah um and uh he he all his he had two brothers and two sisters, and they were also and you know, uh, his mother and father and that was the last time he saw them when he jumped off the balcony and went into the woods um and he was in the underground for about three and a half years with his cousin, his cousin Max was six foot two, two hundred and ten pounds. And they and and they didn't make Jews that large at that time. So he was the protector. No one messed messed with Max and he protected my father. If it wasn't for Max my father probably wouldn't have made it. But he How old was
0: your father during the, the war? and
3: uh, about thirteen and a half to seventeen. Okay. And he came to uh New York on a child quota boat at seventeen. Learned the language. He didn't speak English. He learned the language by going to matinee movies for a nickel and just stayed in the movie theater all day wow. for the reruns. And um, he worked at uh, cleaning up kosher butcher stores. You know, the sawdust on the floor with the blood. And then him and Max actually went into business together, and they had the most. They had the most successful butcher store, kosher butcher store in Brooklyn, in on Remsen Avenue in Flatbush.
0: What was the name of it? Do you remember?
3: Uh, It was, uh, I think it was Max and Marty or Marty and Max or something to that effect.
0: But anyway, growing up... uh, Let me ask you before before you say that, what became of uh, your father's family?
3: They were all killed. Uh, Wow. Yeah, they were all killed. He had no family left. I mean, he used to tell me every time he went out in a public area... He would always look at the person's eyes or face to see if he recognized his family. I mean he that was his thing. He would always be distracted. You could talk to him while walking down the street and he, he wouldn't listen. He'd be looking to see if he recognized oh my some God. Of, one of his family members oh my, my father God. was a broken man, uh, very different than uh Melvin's story. My father uh, uh, he didn't come out a well a well person. <laughs> so being the first born <clears throat> I was expected to be the best at whatever I tried or whatever I did and I always failed him I always let him down because I could only do the best that I could do it wasn't enough for him so uh, eventually I became very good at doing drugs and I became an excellent drug addict and uh, I'm, I'm a uh, recovering drug addict at, uh, right now Um Yeah, so uh, I was always walked on eggshells in the house. Um, If I said the wrong thing, or if anyone said the wrong thing in the house, there was a a shitstorm, a firestorm. I remember, you know, being beat up. Uh, I stopped getting beat up when I was able to outrun my father at at the age of about 14. Uh, I remember getting tossed from the TV to the couch at a young age. One time I was sitting on top of the TV I remember and I took a crap in my pants. I was young. I don't know how young I was. And I remember sailing through the air onto the couch. I remember at dinner uh if my mother didn't cook the the meat the right way or the meal the right way, we were ducking under the table because dishes were flying. I mean, this is the household that I I grew up in. Uh did
0: your did your father talk about what he'd been through? No. Did anybody ever try to get him to talk yeah. about it? What, what would happen then?
3: Uh, he wouldn't, I don't know. I, I don't remember what his, response was, what his response was, but he wouldn't talk about it. We would find out stuff from Max because we used to live in a brownstone in Brooklyn. Max lived upstairs. We lived downstairs. The families uh, lived together. So we would find out more from him than we would from, uh, from, from my father would your mother talk to you at all about what your father had been through my mother is traumatized to this day from your father yes yeah he used to lock my mother in in the closet when uh, he didn't like what she was doing <clears throat> she's traumatized to this to this day i have a brother who is fine he used to laugh in my father's face and get away with it and i don't know how he did that but he was like the comedian of the family he was like (laughs) uh he he
4: he wasn't as affected is he a younger brother or an older brother yeah he's uh he's the youngest yeah the the i'm a first child also The, the first child tends to get the brunt of the parents crap
0: that makes sense and a lot of a lot of times the younger kid sees a dynamic and makes a conscious decision to avoid that dynamic through some type of coping mechanism that may or may not wind up backfiring on them later later in life i don 't know specifically about in you know holocaust survivors and their families, but in terms of of other family dynamics that 's something that i've that i've noticed um, so Michael, do you remember? What do you remember thinking or feeling as a kid when your dad had these outbursts? Did you relate them to what he had been through? No,
3: I mean, when I was young, I was just scared. I was just fearful. I was just scared. Would you blame him or yourself or both? Uh, I probably blame. You know, I, I I blamed him. I I blamed him. I blamed some of it on myself uh i always had to uh i had always had something to prove to him always always but it's ironic because three weeks uh before he passed was my 40th birthday 17 years ago three weeks before he passed was the first time i heard he was proud of me
0: really yeah what was he proud of you for anything specifically
3: um uh, m- uh my my family, my wife my my job at the time, but it wasn't until he died. It wasn't until he died that I felt free.
0: Describe that some more
3: i was i I no longer had to do things thinking of what he would think or what he would say or if he would approve. I didn't have to deal with it anymore,
0: Joel. If you could hand the mic to Joel, um, I'm, you know, it reminds me of the the child of an alcoholic. Yes. But like, rage is the drug for that, for the the sick, the sick person. Um, and Michael's father wasn't a drinker. Can you talk about um that dynamic and and what it has in common with um? The child of
4: an alcoholic or or some type of of addict. Sure, um, yeah, I don't know if I can explain it any better than Michael did. Uh, there, there's when one grows up in such a violent environment. You know, you you either accept that the parent, the person who's the security, the the person who you need to rely on. Either they're completely screwed up and there's no hope for you or you're the screw up and you have to appeal to them. Uh, And often children of addicts, uh, children of traumatized individuals um, or children of of other uh, parents with other types of mental illnesses as well. they grew up feeling that they have to fulfill something that the parent isn't able to fulfill for themselves and often that's put on the child directly by the parent is I didn't get my needs met growing up so you're going to fulfill my needs and that really leaves a kid in a place of not knowing who they are Um, depression is just right around the corner from that Um, real difficulties figuring out one's emotional life I, I mean you there are just so many diff you know, varying outcomes, but none of them are very pleasant. Uh as you
0: hear people like Michael talk about what their parent was like, um does that what that parent was exhibiting is that like cl- classic
4: PTSD? Yes. It doesn't always manifest in, in abuse. Um but you know it sounds like some of the, the needing to react instead of feel how one feels, and especially the silence. PTSD is kind of a back and forth between being flooded with the traumatic experience and needing to do anything you can to shut out that traumatic experience, whether it be aggressing against somebody else, taking drugs, um, psychological numbing. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going
0: to say withdrawing.
4: Withdrawing, very big one, yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's pass the mics over to... um, Amir and uh, and Mel and talk about I want to hear specifically from Amir what um, it's like growing up as as Mel's son and what you remember thinking or feeling uh, about your place in the world in relation to him um, well my world felt
2: it, it, it was really just how Joel said like there's so many similarities and and um my dad he didn't drink. I mean, he maybe had um, just a l- an ounce every like you know, it's just a like a not even a shot. I mean, I don't know, I couldn't even call him a drinker, you know. He's like and um and he, he doesn't remember this, but um he, he would have those violent rages. Um and it was just anything I was it was total walking on eggshells um never felt like he he heard me or listened to me because he he wouldn't have that response of you know someone who's like more n- nurturing and like open about his feelings I mean he just and it, same and my mom gets it too the same every day you know um it, it's he does that silence he'll just shut you out okay fine and then but not talk about it. and you're like no I can see you're still you got something in there, you know. You can't just bottle it, but, you know, that's what uh, led him to have his um, his uh, his heart condition and blood pressure, and then, um, he finally he got a uh, a heart transplant, some, maybe fifteen, so seventeen years ago, he's like a, a record holder, I think. Um, Cedar Sinai, the best. Um, he became totally different. It was like. A switch after his heart attack, and he became just like a really calm, uh, subdued. Like he would be more open to talking, and and how old were you when that happened? I was about, I think sixteen. Uh, no, yeah, about sixteen or eighteen, something like that. Uh, when he had the transplant, but he was in the hospital, like ever since I can remember always in the hospital you know if it wasn't for one thing it was another and for long periods of time like months and he just uh, so it was really hard on my mom financially and um, logistically and he retired I didn't even know him working he was always retired since I was born he, um, um, he I was born when he was 50 and so he was already done in medical issues so the way it affected me was like I felt like I didn't have a father. I just had a a, a guy there who who um, like took me to school. And I mean, I guess that's what dads do. But there wasn't that like if I needed help with homework, you, you know, I couldn't really get the help there. If I needed um, wanted to play some some basketball or play some hockey, like some soccer, he wasn't able. He was already. Um, older and with with health conditions so it was really difficult but I luckily I had an older brother by five years and he stepped in uh, he's very bright and he also suffers from a, a lot he's the oldest but it doesn't really seem like he got the grunt of it like you were describing um, I'm the middle child I have a younger sister and I'm the Black sheep, if you want to say, you know, they're very successful and um, well-to-do as far as their their habits and habit forming where I failed miserably and turned that direction rather than maybe
0: uh, education and things of that sort that are more – too and your life, life got very dark for a for a period of time are you comfortable talking about that at all yeah no i i uh i think that's you know trying to
2: do the opposite of what you what you know you're like predisposition to like you were saying joel like um but yeah i feel like getting it out and talking is always the best you know and um uh, you know i did my um you know, I started when I was twelve. So, it was, and it's funny because I, I think my with, dad. With what? Oh, I started with uh, with, with everything. Uh, I went from private school to public school, and it was game on. You know, it was. Um, I started with cigarettes. Got my first pack from a Bob's Big Boy uh, vending machine. <laughs> you know, and you'd be hard pressed to find someone who will give you like four dollars and quarters you know mm. like everyone's like no I don't have that to spare you know and so 12 and then lost my virginity in, at 12 drank alcohol of course I mean that just seemed like everybody was um, and actually my father lost his virginity at 12 as well yeah to the to the nanny or the housekeeper wow that's it's own oh, trauma yeah no he, he's got you know um, issues of course but I mean he's been with my mother for how long have you been married? 45 years you've been married yeah so no I feel like I see that I see that and I'm very monogamous never cheated you know do my best not to glance over when she's in my presence but you know sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do but okay. um, you know and I thought that was really really um, important you know so i mean he taught me of course you know just like every father good or bad they teach you something mm-hmm. and um now he's taught me also the same uh, to be tolerant to people you know especially growing up in la the melting pot of um, cultures it's so it's much easier i mean what would he what would he say to you as a as a kid to, to teach you that tolerance I guess led by example because he really didn't talk. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It was never really father son talking time. You know, I'd have hockey practice at, um, you know, five six o'clock in the morning, and we'd be driving the thirty minutes with with talk news radio, AM radio. He um, he didn't listen to music unless it was uh, classical. Um, Even though living in america now it's like never got into the discotheque even though he went through the arrow you know And
0: did your parents ever praise your hockey ability
2: oh no my dad is the worst is the <laughs> worst flirt if there is a female in the room no and, and you know what that's probably why i don't do that in in my ex-wife's presence or in my females at the time present Um, he's so bad that he would go to my games my practices and just talk to all the moms the whole time and just bounce from one to the other to the other and they would all gather around him because all he did was just tell the story just tell the story. I mean it's a chick magnet, you know? <laughs> and that's it. I mean he's like push play, you know, he's 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 a recorder. He doesn't know what he had for breakfast. He doesn't remember anything of my childhood.
0: Um uh, but you were d- a child. <laughs> 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 Mel just briefly, said you briefly. were a child. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um I, I play hockey with Amir and he's one of the most gifted hockey players uh, I've played? I've ever played with. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. and um, it kind of breaks my heart on a certain level that you didn't get that recognition as a kid because, I mean, Amir just dances around people with the puck. And when the other team sees that he's showing up for the game, they're, I can see their shoulders slump a little bit. Um, <laughs> Damn, he made it. Yeah. We should have slashed his tires. <laughs> do, do you feel like that, that lack of recognition drove you to... To improve, or was it just the natural love of hockey? The natural love, and
2: and uh, of course, uh, my brother he also played, and he was he was there giving me praise, and and he was you know he stepped up as the father. Is this of the, your own? Yeah, your own. Yeah, yeah. your as,
0: own also plays it on our uh, our team.
2: And uh, and and his best friend John, who uh, whose father was um, from Montreal, so he. He got my brother to play, and then I wanted to be like my brother, so then I wanted to play, and then we all started playing together, and then it just became like wildfire, and then it was it was all love for the game, and and uh, I didn't need praise. Um, I think I I've gotten so little praise that you know I just go on my own love for it, but um, my mom she. Since my dad was retired, my mom was the breadwinner. She had her own company and she was working the whole time. So she left at the house at 6 o'clock in the morning and didn't come back until 8 o'clock at night. So she maybe saw of my youth hockey like two games out of uh, from 7 to 18, 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, no practices, of course, because, um, I mean, and no, I mean, I would tell my my dad at the end of the game was so bad, on the drive home, he would ask me who won. <laughs> not,
0: not even if I scored a goal or anything. He didn't even know. Let's, let's pass the mi- uh, mic to Mel. I want to ask him, as you hear uh, Amir talk about yeah. what you used to be like, what comes up to, in you and what do you think?
1: Oh, I, uh, he talks about me?
0: Yeah. What you, what you used to be like before the heart transplant and you kind of not being...
1: Well, uh, yeah. he speaks very well about it, and not to exaggerate, and, you know, it's it's very, very hard. No, remember when, before you had your heart attack?
2: Yeah. And how you would behave, um, like you had a very hot temper, do you remember? Yeah. mm mm-hmm. Like you would go, like, from zero to a hundred very fast, you remember?
0: Mel's kind of shaking his head, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I guess...
2: Uh, it was yesterday, sir. So yeah. Know. But now, but then after you had your your heart attacks and your transplant, yeah, you were much calmer.
1: Do you th- do you feel that? You should know better than I do. I don't know. I don't yeah. talk to myself. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you know what that sound is? It's time, time to give our sponsor a little bit of love. Our sponsor is on it. Onnit.com, the website for all your health and, and fitness uh, needs. That's my little tagline that I that I made up for them. But I love their stuff. They sent me some freebies a couple of months ago or a couple of weeks ago, and I've been using them ever since then. I, I Actually, the freebies ran out, and I'm going to their website and buying it on my own. I love their Choco Maca protein powder, their um, Total Primate Care vitamin packs. It's a day pack and a night pack. Still haven't touched the kettlebell they gave me. Uh, I like to think of it as a paperweight for uh, our rug. (laughs) I'm confident that our rug will never fly away because that kettlebell is (laughs) sitting there securely. But uh, I love their stuff. And I think one of the things, you know, because many of us live with depression and mental illness is we forget to take care of ourselves. We say, oh, I don't want to spend that extra $10 on something. Well, you know. Sometimes quality costs a little bit more money, and uh, I can tell you this stuff at Onnit is very high quality, and I, I have felt a difference in my energy since I started using their product. So there you have it. Go check it out, onit.com and our landing page is it.com slash happy hour. That's O-N-N-I-T dot com slash happy hour. Go check it out and support us. Thanks. Let's pass the mic over to, to Joel. Um, what What are you thinking, not only as um, somebody who has personally experienced some of these dynamics, but as a
4: psychologist, what are you
0: thinking and feeling as you hear this?
4: Well, well, first, because as, as a psychologist and somebody who grew up with this, I'm always thinking about other people first. My uh, <laughs> I, I'm hearing Amir's story, and the therapist in me just says, it sounds like you had no guidance growing up so it's no wonder that you kind of went off on this this path and you know yeah
2: uh, I had no guidance no discipline I would never be grounded yeah. when I was 12 years old I would be stealing my uh, my mom's car pulling it out of the driveway in neutral um and going and smoking dope and drinking and partying and and even if she did find out, which happens sometimes, that that there's no consequence. I never. They never said no hockey. They never. Well, they did, but then I just went anyway. I was uh, like,
4: so, so. How were you supposed to figure out a path for yourself, a good path for yourself, if nobody was showing you the way?
2: Yeah, I just. Uh, I had my brother, you know. Um, but of course, he wasn't grounding me. Um, so he was just there to protect me, you know, sure. although he was five years older. So when he went to college, I was 13. And that's when, you know, I started smoking crack at 14. Wow. And um, my my dad actually picked me up from the police station one time. And uh, the officer told him, your son was smoking crack. And he s- looked at him like, I don't know what you're talking about. And not that he didn't know that I was doing it he doesn't know, know what crack is right so you
0: weren't gonna tell him
2: yeah right so and I'm, and I'm like yeah yeah crack that is you know on the ground cracks you know I was, I was you know stuck walls you know filling cracks This is what he's talking and he saw that my dad had no idea what he was talking about and he said cocaine and that word my dad's heard on TV and in the news and it was in it was in the 80s so I mean it was it was popular and um, – but uh, no, he he's, he doesn't uh, – it's like he's still not American yet. He still thinks in his head that they're going to come through the door, that any time – That's know, really common. – saves these. Right. Um, bottle caps, you know, because you may need it later. Like, for what? <laughs>
4: There was a, a psychologist, his last name was Lifton, I don't remember his first name, but he wrote that um, survivors and the subsequent generation have what he calls a death imprint, which is this kind of radical feeling that um, that there's always death is imminent, that, that something can happen to, to just suddenly screw it all up. But back to Paul's question about um, listening to your story, how I feel as somebody who experiences myself and as a psychologist... As a psychologist, I just marvel at how healing can occur at any time in one's life. You know, it happened for Amir as a younger man. It happened for Amir's father as an older man, and hearing stories like that gives me hope for those who haven't yet started the process, and, and I, it, it's one of the reasons why I love doing what I do. Um, and as somebody who experienced it myself, the idea of rage is so close to home. I grew up definitely with rages in my family, and something I've struggled with, too. I can't tell you how many uh, Nintendo controllers uh, <laughs> suffered the wrath of Joel growing up. I was, I was not invited back to friends' houses as a child because this rage would just boil up in me. It was never to people, only to uh, those damned controllers that were making me lose the game. Um, so, would you say rage was the primary way that emotion was
0: expressed in in your family
4: uh certainly one of my parents only one of my parents comes from a uh, a, a holocaust family uh the other one um I think I only saw that parent really angry you know when talking about politics <laughs> yeah. uh
0: if you could pass the mic to uh to mike uh what are you thinking and feeling as you hear? them share this and and i just wanted to preface this with i've had the privilege in the last couple of years of seeing a transformation in in you that is so beautiful um thank you can you can you talk about um first of all what you think and feel as you as you hear amir and joel share uh about that and then i want you to talk about how dark things got for you and what changed
3: yeah, a lot of what uh Amir was talking about resonates. Um, um I was kind of on the opposite side of the coin though with the discipline. Uh I was always uh disciplined, but my brother, my my, my the the youngest brother, he was never disciplined and could get away with ever whatever he was doing, although he wasn't doing too many things that were uh not acceptable. Um it's just, I you know, it's just great that uh I'm actually jealous that you have this relationship with your dad and that your dad is sitting here at this table. I mean that's yeah, that's that's uh that's wonderful.
0: Um What would you say if your dad magically came back for this recording? What would you, you know, say I went, to him, if anything?
3: I went through um you know, when I was Twenty-three years old, twenty-four. I went to uh, Chabad, a uh, residential drug program. I was there for was four. Th- you were in Chabad, yeah, for what year? a year. But yeah, I don't know. I was twenty-five. It was like it was, ten years ago. Okay, were you guys bunkies? No, I was there the second year they opened up. It was on uh, Robertson. I was dealing with uh, my father at the time from a therapeutic standpoint through Gestalt therapy. <clears throat> and that's when, you know, you picture your father in a chair and you talk to him as if he was as if he was there. Uh, what would I say if uh, we'll put it this way? I've written a uh, pretty long amends to my dad and I'm waiting to go back to Rhode Island. That's where he's buried to uh, go to the grave site and and do my amends. Um, I've only been to the grave site once in in 17
0: years. Are you dreading or looking forward to going and doing that? Uh, both. I know how I'm going to feel afterward.
3: And that's the looking forward part, and the dreading part is actually going to do it.
0: What what do you dread about that?
3: Um It's just that it's it's very it would it's very uh, emotional for me. It's very emotional. Uh, in some ways, I think I'm still grieving. You know, there's a lot of great things that I learned from my father. I mean, one was retail. Uh, my father was always in the food business, retail. I mean, look what I do. I mean, I my father taught me how to negotiate. Now I negotiate with the most brutal collection agency on the planet, and I do pretty good at
0: it. Michael, we're at, actually at his tax offices, and uh, you're company has how many employees? Uh 85. 85 employees. Um, do you think that that what you went through drove you to be so successful? Or yes. Okay. Yes. Are you able to enjoy your success? Today I can. When how recently were you not able to? Up until 2 years ago. And you were still getting loaded then? Yeah. So what, what was the, the, and did you answer the question about what you would say to your to No, your I did not. Okay. If, I, I, I don't know what I would say. I don't, I don't know. What do you think you would feel if you, if you saw him? Would you not want to be there? Would you want to be there? Yeah, I would want to be there. I'd
3: want to be there. There's probably a lot I would talk to him about now. Uh, but it's it's painful. It's really it's truly painful.
0: I can't imagine. I mean, it, what you went through is it just sounds horrible.
3: Well, it it I, I don't mean it to sound horrible. Uh, too late. Yeah, it's too late. <laughs> Although that's what I've been diagnosed with: uh, PSTD.
1: PTSD. Uh, PTSD.
0: PTSD. Yeah. yeah. Hold email. on one second. I'm going to pass the mic to you, Mel.
1: Uh, in Poland, they used to have an expression: "There's nothing bad happen in life, or doesn't come out for the best." And I couldn't understand it, but the loss of my eye, the injury of my eye, actually saved my life. It God works in mysterious ways, and uh, it's unbelievable. If I wasn't injured. And I wasn't in the infirmary, then uh, I would have gone together with the rest of them, uh, who they took out from the, um, how do you call it, uh, not a hospital, but you know, an infirmary.
2: What? Infirmary.
1: Infirmary. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He actually. Um, he actually they they cleared out the infirmary of all the sick because they didn't want to take care of them anymore and waste resources so they came in and cleaned house and just killed them all but my dad he was there with his eye injury and the doctor was from his hometown and stuffed him under the bed and covered him up they came in cleaned house uh, you know he popped him up later and he said oh what happened to, what happened to everybody they got better and he was still young and naive, and and the doctor says, "No, don't ask stupid questions." And that was it, I, I you
1: know. I still don't don't believe that what a person can take. It's unbelievable. They, uh, we keep constantly saying, "Oh, behave like an animal." I wish animal only kill for two reasons self-defense or when they're hungry. People are the worst creatures in the world, really, unbelievable. So, but, one good thing came out of it, I never complain, and I appreciate every little thing. Every time I walk into Jack in the Box or McDonald's, I say thank <laughs> you. No, really, I mean... No,
2: it's the best, for a dollar what you can get is
4: ridiculous. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh if if go ahead Joel. I just wanted to to throw in there that um I really love the sentiment of you know everything happens for a reason. Um and, and people who successfully navigate through their traumatic events they they have this characteristic that Melvin shows where they just have this great authenticity and appreciation towards life and just wonderful sense of self and they're great to be around. Um, but unfortunately, not everybody navigates through that successfully. And, you know, I just want to acknowledge that there are people who bad things have happened, and it's not something that ends up good.
0: And what do you think is the cause of that? That's just part of the universe, that that those people um, didn't adopt an attitude that allowed them to heal, that they were incapable of adopting an attitude that allowed them to heal? To heal all of the above.
4: I'm fond of saying that trauma isn't necessarily what happens to you, it's what happens in the aftermath. So, those who have supports around them or are part of a culture or of a society that is really willing to aid them in healing. I, th- I think that's more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, there are things that people are born with that make them um, less susceptible to healing than others. But I really feel that it's more of an institutional uh, failing rather than a personal one. Mm-hmm. In yeah. a lot of cases, like PTSD in, in Vietnam veterans, for example, is the you know classic case of the failure of the system to really help people heal. Uh, Michael? Michael? Uh,
0: I'd I'd like to hear you finish talking about how dark it got and what changed for you.
3: Well, it got uh, it, it got to the point where you know I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. I didn't I didn't want to feel inadequate. I, I didn't I, I didn't want to feel less than. I Did you know that you were feeling that? Uh, no, I I just no, I I just knew I was not feeling good so i wanted to do anything i could not to feel
0: that way and the reason i bring that up is so many people and myself included are used to shutting down to protect ourselves that we don't the first phase is understanding what we're even feeling before then we know how to how to process that and a lot of people i think listening to the podcast don't can't relate to other people's feelings uh, sometimes until they hear somebody else talk about it, and then they're like, Yes, that's how I feel. Um, so, yeah, I was just you know, I think
3: the, to describe it the best, it was feeling nervous, nervous or anxious. Uh, uh, that's probably how I could never sit still anyway. So, was there an
0: emptiness in, in that as well, or just an agitation?
3: Uh, no, there was some emptiness, it was there was emptiness for sure. I just didn't want to feel the way I, I felt, so um, I, I wasn't much of a drinker, really, uh, a, a lot of pot, but when I discovered pills, it was, it was all over, and I, and I was a, a downer freak. I mean, phenobarbital, 2-in-all, 2 all Paris 400s, Quaaludes, Mandrakes, you name it, That's what, uh, that was my drug of choice, because with that, I really was numb. I, I didn't feel anything. But you were high functioning because you clearly I built was, this company. <laughs> well, there I was yeah. clean and sober for twenty five years. Oh, I really? I was clean and sober from nineteen eighty three till about two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. Is that when you discovered the pills? No, I discovered the pills back, back pre eighty three. Okay. Stayed clean and sober for twenty five years.
0: With no support groups?
3: I went to support groups for about 10 years after Chabad. And after 10 years, I just stopped going, started to build this, and I channeled everything into this. If you ask um, my wife, I mean, she didn't see me for 8 or 10 years. I was here 12, 14 hours a day. I was not in my kid's life. Uh, I have two daughters, 25 and 21. Uh, and first, now I'm I'm getting reconnected with them because I wasn't available when when they were growing up. One of my children is um, has ha, also has uh, addiction problems. She's she's good now, but uh, she was she's an addict yeah. in recovery.
0: I remember you sharing about that when it it was bad and it, you were so worried as as a parent. And I and I think I remember you also um, blaming your yourself and feeling guilty
3: yeah yeah because i wasn't there i i felt i wasn't there if i was there maybe she wouldn't have done that or uh you know uh and then in 2006 2007 i had some life altering events that took place in my life one was putting uh, my child into rehab my daughter I mm-hmm. just spoke about um and two business related things that uh just I had no coping skills to handle, and I turned to the internet, and the internet was a great drug dealer. you know never talked back to you it, <laughs> as long as you had the money you didn 't hear anything you know it was uh It was a good deal while it lasted and uh, Do you
0: remember making the conscious decision to start using drugs again
3: no no, it was uh very casual. At first, so
0: you had drifted away from
3: support groups yes. for, for years. Yeah, and then it was just uh, you know I could do this. I, I haven't done it in so long. I'm not gonna sure
0: the usual mantra. <laughs> yeah,
3: and uh, before you know it, I couldn't I couldn't stop. So you know I checked myself into a detox in 2010.
0: I remember when you when you rolled into to our support group, your eyes would be downcast. There was a, a visible. Anger and uneasiness yeah, about you. Um, you didn't make eye can't on, eye contact, um, and then you started apparently doing the work yeah. and looking at what was inside of you. And I remember it. It it was almost over like the course of a week. And what you would, how you would talk, suddenly had this. Well,
3: the support group has saved my life. I mean the support group that that uh, our support group is a recipe for living for anybody uh not just the afflicted if you will i mean if the world was part of that support
4: group we wouldn't have any war yeah. wars i mean it would be a great it would be a great world The support groups and group therapy are terribly underutilized by our culture the the Amount of healing that can happen within groups is, is just amazing from what I've noticed.
0: There, I mean, it's the reason I started this podcast because I realized from support groups how healing hearing another person's story can be mm-hmm. and not feeling alone and feeling comfort and being able to laugh. Yeah, is the greatest thing in the world. Um, you know, somebody talking to you from a, what they learned in a textbook can certainly help you turn certain corners but yeah. there is nothing like feeling the universe hug you through another person
3: yeah no it's true it's true it's true you know the other thing i wanted to say is that with my dad uh i learned that the distance be- uh, uh, the quickest distance between two points most people would answer is a straight line in his world it was an angle it was always an angle to everything that my dad did um I mean this is uh, and I learned this at a very young age and it, it even though you know we do everything ethically and above board and everything else, knowing what the angles are makes you, in my opinion, a better business person because you know how to navigate, but one of the things that he would do is and we would always not we would always like scratch our head, he would actually. Torch businesses. Like set them on fire? Like Jewish lightning. Wh- wh- what my you- father had a hotel. My father was a kosher butcher. Saved every dime he had. My grandparents owned a hotel in the Catskills in Monticello, New York. Uh, my grandfather was the nicest man in the world, but the worst businessman. Mm-hmm. So the hotel was in Hawk for $85,000 of property taxes... Was going on the auction block. It was on the auction block. This is 1965. My my grandfather and grandmother, besides my my mother, who was their daughter, they had two other daughters who were married to Americans, not Holocaust survivors. They were all at the auction. They didn't know who was going to buy the hotel. My father walked in with eighty five thousand dollars cash and bought the hotel. Ran it for seven years. It was very profitable. But for some reason, he also had business interruption insurance. And before the summer season started, he said he was trying out a new baker in the kitchen. The hotel was a 100-room hotel, 200 people max. And the hotel was old. So when the uh, baker went in, to, when he went in to try to uh, shut the ovens off, you couldn't see where it said on. You couldn't see where it said off. It was one of these old cast-iron old ovens from the 40s. So his story was: I let the I let the new baker. I try. I was trying him out for the summer season. It was late at night. He left. He couldn't see what was on and off that night. The hotel blew up.
0: It, it was like in the newspaper. And it was accidental. <laughs> Michael just turned his head like a that's like a dog st- hearing that's the story. A whistle. That's the story. That's the story. But it happened more than
1: once it to happened businesses.
0: Two other times. Okay. And why do you think And he would never ever let on ever. What would he gain by having done that? Insurance. Okay. I wonder if there's a relationship between feeling like you have to work an angle and that having been a survival skill. Yeah.
3: It wasn't uh, my wife, I mean my I was uh, and I was like that for a few years into our marriage because, you know, if someone did something to the car or to the house, like if someone broke into the apartment or the house, I would start emptying out the apartment into the garage and file a claim. And I mean, because that's what I was that, that growing up as a kid. That's what you did. That was
2: they're night you go and ask your neighbors yeah you still have the receipt
3: for that 70 inch TV yeah I need it <laughs> I mean that's just
0: uh, that was normal operating procedure and that changed when when you got sober
3: uh, no it changed uh when I got married because my my wife couldn't believe some of the things I was pulling and she said that you can't do
0: this anymore and did you do it because she awoke your conscience or you didn't want to displease her? I, I did it. That's a good question, Paul. I, hmm, I think
3: I did it because I, I, I stopped doing it because it wasn't the right thing to do. And it was more to, to please her at the beginning. But uh, but going along
0: that path, I realized it wasn't the right thing to Did do. Did you feel your self-esteem change a little bit from from refraining from that? Or was it just still such a wall of self-hatred and discomfort? No, that in and of itself didn't really okay. change that. Um, do you guys were, were a little over, and I know Michael's got uh, a place to be, so I want to try to find an, a note to wrap things up on. Um, i'd like to to not give you something to wrap it up on and just let you so let's start with uh let's start with Joel and then go around the room if you could uh let the the people know uh what it is that you do and if
4: they want to get in contact with you, how can they do that sure um I am a psychotherapist i have a uh i work as part of a group private practice in Torrance right now. Uh, it's That's in California. That's in California, Torrance, California. Uh, it's called uh, Poach Consulting and Associates, uh, southbaytreatments.com. Uh, I also do uh, – I have another job at a place called Center for Discovery, but that's uh, inpatient for teenagers, and I do psychological testing and some therapy there. Um, I, I've worked mostly with uh, kids and teens with special needs, but I, I, my real passion is working with adults – who have been through traumatic experiences. And I guess the, the main thing I take from this is, is hearing how everybody has healed, recalling what's helped me heal from my own childhood. You know, it, it, it's a great profession that I'm in and I'm never gonna get sick of hearing these stories. And, and I'm never gonna stop finding meaning. Uh, from listening to to what people have gone through and how they have come out the other end,
0: thank you for that sure Michael
3: just want to say, uh, I appreciate you coming over today and having giving us the op giving me the opportunity to speak with you about this um, i I believe it or not, I l- love speaking about it because uh, that 's what I need to do to heal uh, so for me it 's uh, it's uh, it, it's an honor and a privilege to to speak about it and to meet uh, Mel and his son Amir and and Joe. So uh, with that, uh, I'll pass the mic. Uh,
2: I think it's really been eye-opening uh, t- to hear the, the similarities, uh, definitely um, in these two other gentlemen and and from what I hear, other children of Holocaust survivors and actually um my therapist uh from Chabad was a child of a Holocaust survivor um so that was a really that was really really good and he was of course a therapist so you know maybe that's where people turn to they're like why am I like this and um I think um you know, it's one step in the, in a forward direction, definitely for myself. Um, cause, um, you know, like, like my father, you know, he told me, you know, if you're not learning something new every day, then you're not learning anything, you know, I mean, even just simple things every minute. Yeah. You never stop. And I think today was a good learning experience for myself. And, um, Meeting you guys uh, is wonderful experience, and hearing the uh, your stories, and then what you took from it, and you know, I had uh, I did have eleven years of sobriety, and, um, and it was it was fantastic, it was amazing. Um, didn't utilize the support groups, um, just like you mentioned, Joel. Uh, definitely took advantage um, and. Um, thought I was fixed, but um, I'm still broke. <laughs> so on that note, uh, I hope to see you guys again sometime, and maybe we can chat some more.
0: Well, you're still lovable, no matter no matter what you're doing. Mel, what yeah. would you what would you like to say in uh, in closing?
1: Well, uh, I would like to say that hatred and bitterness only ruins your life uh it doesn't do you any good i still believe that the majority of people are good if you complain to somebody who doesn't like you he's happy about yeah. it <laughs> and if you complain to somebody who uh, uh who likes you he's upset too so uh, complaining won't do you any good and that's one good thing i learned from that all that uh, uh, but everybody tries to save his own life, so he'll do anything to to save your own life. Um, we had uh, this guy in, uh, in Plashev in the camp where I was. His name was Amon Gett. He was a commandant. His habit was every morning to get dressed in his fancy uniform, put two guns, and walked through the camp until he emptied both guns. Killed whoever was there. We, who knew already that but every day they used to bring new prisoners. And I was on his trial. He says, yes, I did it, and I'm not sorry. And he got the death penalty. And something something actually
2: interesting that... um, And I'll uh, wrap this up. uh, Sometimes things come full circle. Uh, And my dad, he doesn't even know this. But at the trials in Nuremberg where my dad uh, testified, um, like for this gets, um, the lieutenant from the U.S. who was there representing the U.S. was – I just found this out a month ago. My dad doesn't even know. Was Attilus – from my father's great-great-great-grandfather's brother and where it branched off and they didn't even know it until he just contacted me a couple months ago and said, oh, we're related. This is." And he told me a little bit of a story and I told him I was in the Air Force and he said, oh, well, a great story is, um, you know, one of our uh, uh, brothers or cousins was a... Um, Lieutenant in the Air Force and testified at the Nuremberg Trust. and <laughs> my dad was there too. It was like, oh, how funny! <laughs>
1: wow. Uh, I lived in Germany five years after the war. Never had, and I returned to my own Poland. I lived through two pogroms. You know the pogrom? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they run on the street any Jew they see, they kill him. I said to my mother, we had to survive the German camp and return to our own country and get killed. No, the Polish people were, thou shalt not kill. But if it's a Jew or a gypsy, it's okay. <laughs> no, no that the Polish people behaved very, very badly. Mm. And I lived in Germany after the war, five years, never, never had any problem. Uh, listen, there are good people and bad people every place. Uh, so, uh, hatred only ruins your life. Mm. Uh, so, thanks God for that, that, that was the best teaching I got. For my mother, after the war, we lived in Germany in a DP for Displaced People <laughs> camp. We were getting all the food, and the Germans, Till 1948, uh, everything was Russian. They c- mm. So you used to go to the park. In Berlin? And no, in Bad Reichenhall. was a resort place in Bavaria. Mm. And she used to go to the park and give German children candy. So a lady from the camp walks up to her and says, you lost three children? You give German children candy? My mother said the innocent children. Oh, she was a wonderful person.
2: Uh. What happened when you came to uh, to America yeah. and your first job was um, making dentures, uh, teeth, uh. and who did they put in the same right next to you?
1: Oh, wait a minute, uh, a German. Uh, yeah. Who? Well, uh, Waldemar. Yeah. He lifted his arm, and there was an SS tattoo.
2: Really? And they ended up uh, outraged. And then the boss put him in a room and said, you're not coming out until you can. And they ended up being best friends. He was at my bar mitzvah, at my wedding. I mean, you know, it's...
1: Truth is stranger than fiction. It really (laughs) is. You know, uh, I I don't believe it. uh, What a human being can go through if he wants to, you know? Unbelievable. But I'm grateful for that. It's one good thing. Okay? Every time I walk in to check the bags on <laughs> external, I say, thank you dear God I live today.
0: Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much, Mel. Wow. that. Wow. one of the great things about getting to do this this podcast is to is to have front row seats for for stuff like that and to and to be friends with 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 people like that that um are so trusting and uh willing to just open up and and be honest about what they've been through and um I learned a lot and I hope you guys did uh, did too um before I I read a stack surveys. Um, I always tell myself I'm going to read less surveys this show and then I just feel compelled to read so many of these because they're so interesting to me. Um, before I get to those, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the show. You can support us financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making either a one-time PayPal donation or as you know, if you're a regular listener, it's my favorite. The recurring monthly donation. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month and it may not be a lot to you but that small gesture really adds up and helps support the show it, it means the world to me so I appreciate all of you that uh, that are monthly donors um, and uh, you can also support us by shopping through our Amazon uh, search portal it's on our home page right hand side about halfway down make sure that your uh, pop-up blocker is disabled because otherwise it might not show up especially on uh, uh, the browser the Firefox browser um, you can also support us by, um, non-financially, by going to iTunes and write, writing something nice and giving us a good rating. And you can support us uh, especially through spreading the word through social media. That's greatly appreciated. Um, so please continue to do that because the more this show grows, the more people hear it, and the uh, closer I get to being able to support myself doing this full time. Um, let's get into oh and and i want to thank that you know manny uh who helps run the forum and keeps the spammers out all you sweet sweet people that have transcribed episodes uh, there's a lot of work involved in that and i really really appreciate it matt who helps um uh put together audio clips that i use when i put intros and and outros together uh, each year so um and i'm sure there's other people i'm forgetting to to thank but um all right let's get into the surveys this first one is from a a very rarely taken survey called young male abused by older female and this is filled out by um johnny doppler although he he hasn't been um abused by an older female he fantasizes about it he is um bisexual in his 30s um was raised in in an environment that was a little bit dysfunctional uh never been sexually abused and uh He writes, uh, I want to find my mother in an anonymous sex party and have sex with her without her knowing it is me. I would be in my late teens, she would be mid-40s. I feel hatred for myself and long to be able to get rid of this corrosive thinking that lies at the heart of my sex. Um, It's doing massive damage to me. Essentially, I can almost never come without this fantasy in my head, and it is mixing what should be the most wonderful thing in my life, lovemaking, with the worst feeling imaginable. I can make love normally, but when the afterglow is faded, I'm filled with self-loathing for the way I've fantasized while having sex. Um, I know it will never happen. This fantasy fills me with self-hatred and shame. Well, um, my heart goes out to you, Um, Johnny sending you a big hug and i hope I hope that if you're not talking to um, a professional about this um, you do because um, that's a that's a lot that that hatred and shame is a lot to a, a lot to live with um, this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself kBO he's straight in his thirties um, uh, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts, violence against my wife, especially when I feel frustrated. Deepest, darkest secrets, frequently visiting prostitutes. Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you, some sadistic fantasies. Also fantasize, fantasizing about being female, dominated by men. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? I've considered, but never able to do because of my repression. Uh, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? There is definitely shame, since I cannot admit it, but able to forgive myself and not be too self-hating." Well high five to you, KBO, for um, seeing how corrosive shame and self-hatred can be when you're not um, hurting anybody else, Um, and not that shame and self-hatred you know, should be what immediately arrives when you hurt somebody else. But um, I think reaching out for help when you find yourself hurting other people. Um, this is uh, a lot of, almost exclusively shame and secrets surveys um, at the end of this show. So if you don't like these, uh, A, go fuck yourself. Uh, B, you might want to tune up. There's just so many interesting ones this, uh, this week. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Sweeney. She's straight. Uh, in her 40s was raised in a stable and safe environment was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it deepest darkest thoughts I think pretty frequently about cheating and or leaving my husband either with a stranger or my best female friend deepest darkest secrets when I was younger I lied numerous times to my friends and family to make my life seem so much more dramatic and exciting for example I pretended I thought I was pregnant even though there wasn't a, wasn't a chance I was just for the attention um Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My most common fantasy is that I'll meet a sexy stranger somewhere... And he'll be so amazed and attracted to me that he won't be able to control himself. In the thrill and excitement of the moment, I'll get swept up on that amazing roller coaster of undeniable sexual attraction and fall into bed with him even though I'm married. Sometimes I pretend my husband is out of the picture. Usually he left me in this fantasy so I can absolve myself of any guilt in advance. Sometimes I have a similar fantasy about my best friend. And even though she and I are both straight, I believe that if we were the only option left for each other, we would have an amazing and loving relationship that would beat the hell out of any we'd had with men. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? I wouldn't share either of these with my husband. Hopefully it's obvious why. I've hinted at the stranger fantasy with some of my female friends, but really don't have the guts to lay out the whole scene. I feel like they think I have this perfect little relationship with my husband, and that would make them critical of me. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I alternate between shame and bitterness and self-righteousness here. I've been married for almost 16 years, and for the last several years, sex of any form of sexual or any form of sexual intimacy has been sporadic to non-existent. Some days I am crippled by guilt for thinking the way I do. Others, I'm so angry that I've lost the chance to be loved and desired sexually that I think it would serve him right if I cheated." Um, any comments to make the podcast better? I would love to hear more from people with children and learn more about how they manage and or struggle to work on and manage their mental issues while still maintaining a safe and loving environment for their kids. That's a that's a great suggestion for, for future episodes. And um, thank you for your, your honesty, Sweeney. This is um, Shame and Secrets filled out by a guy who calls himself Beck. He's 17, uh, identifies as bisexual, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional um ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse I don't remember it very well my older half brother had me give him fellatio when I was little and he would do the same on me I don't remember if it happened multiple times but I think so um that's sexual abuse um that is sexual abuse um especially because if I remember correctly he was um definitely older than you and um Deepest, darkest thoughts, I think about physically abusing my girlfriend and previous girlfriend. I used to write a dream diary, and one of the entries is about one dream where I whip my ex-girlfriend. I noted also that, quote, it felt nice to beat the shit out of that slut. Uh, Deepest, darkest secrets, to expand on the quote, maybe sexual abuse. My half-brother is about seven years older than me. I haven't stayed in contact with him. I think I was seven or eight. He mainly lived with his mother, my dad's ex-wife. He used to stay with our shared father and thus me for a weekend every month or every other month. He didn't enjoy it very much, but I looked up to him and I remember I loved seeing the video games that he played. I used to follow him around a lot. He told me if I wanted to do so, I had to give him do him a favor, i.e. touching his penis and sucking it for him. He would do the same on me. I haven't told anyone. I find it quite embarrassing. I consented to it. But now he's 24, something of an alcoholic and taking an education to become a pedagogue. Uh, first of all, I didn't know what pedagogue meant, but I knew it. I had the feeling it wasn't good because not many Good words begin with P-E-D-A, but it turns out it's not necessarily a bad thing. It means somebody who educates small children, but in his case, I don't know, that's setting off alarm bells in my head, and I would love to know what mental health professionals think um, about that, you know, uh, while people who, and and I I think your stepfather was clearly um, sexually abused himself. And while people who were sexually abused don't necessarily go on to sexually abuse, um, the fact that he's seeking out to be around young children um, is, I don't know, setting off alarm bells in me. And I wonder what is, what, if anything, somebody should do if they know that person is working with children and they have a history of sexually abusing children. Uh, The other thing that I I wanted to say to you, uh, Beck, is... um, you did not consent to it. Um, you were manipulated into it. You were seven and he was 14. Um, and that is that is not, and even if your body physically enjoyed it, that that is your soul um, did not in, enjoy that. And nobody's soul enjoys being tricked. And um, so I think, and you said you never talked to anybody about it and it's quite embarrassing. You have nothing to be embarrassed about. You should have no shame true easier said than done but please go talk to somebody um about that and um that's my two cents on that one this is um same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself nicole she's in her 20s identifies as asexual was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional um some stuff happened but she doesn't know if it counts as sexual abuse um Deepest, darkest thoughts, that I had a different life, a different dad, but then I just feel guilty and hate myself for thinking it because overall things were not bad. Also, I think about telling my mom about everything my dad has done over the years. He's screwed with my life, and why not screw up his? I'm tired of living a lie. I don't know who I am anymore. Deepest secrets. Um, Right when I hit puberty around 10, I guess, my dad started the whole sex talk thing parents are supposed to do, but it didn't just stop with talking touching me, making me touch him, asking for a hug, then groping me, walking in on me in the shower or bedroom when he knew I would be undressed, laying on top of me to lick my breasts, then masturbating in front of me, and continued for a lot of years. Um, Nicole, that is so clearly sexual abuse. That is so not in any kind of gray area. You know, your father used that sex talk to you know make it look like he was educating you and of course you you wish that you had a different life and a different dad Why, why would you feel guilty and hate yourself for thinking that your father tremendously abused your trust tremendously um and I just hope you I hope you go and talk to somebody about that. And if you don't feel like being around your dad, cut contact with him. He's sick. He is sick. I hope he's getting help. But um like the previous survey I read, you have no part in that. You were a child.
4: <sighs>
0: this is filled out same survey by a woman who calls herself the subaudible. Um She's straight in her 20s, uh, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, and was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Uh, Deepest, darkest thoughts. I don't generally have many things I am ashamed to think, but for the sake of the survey, I'll say that my attraction to homoerotic literature involving minors could be questionable. Um, Deepest, darkest secrets. And I think this is a really important one to read. I know it, it, it sounds like, you know, this... The surveys are all about sex in this one, but each one has something that I really either want to make a point about or I feel like I want to give the person some some comfort and This one, I think is really, really important. Um, she writes, "I was raped at the age of six, and when I told my parents a year later, I hid the truth from them after seeing their reaction to part of the truth when I saw how much it hurt them." Just to know that the man had touched me, I couldn't bear to cause them more unnecessary pain. I have lived with the weight of it for over 20 years and sometimes my mother will make comments about how lucky I was that it was only touching. It makes me feel angry because I've never been able to tell anyone the truth and my mother thinks I am, quote, lucky. I do not feel lucky to carry this secret around inside of me just to avoid hurting others. I do it because I feel it is the right thing to do, but it does not feel good. During a heated argument with my mother when I was around 8 years old, I said I wanted to run away and my mother responded with the most shocking and hurtful thing anyone has ever said to me. She told me that I should go live with the man who sexually abused me if I thought my life was so terrible at home. Those words still cut me to the bone 20 years later. Oh that I just want to give you the biggest hug. Oh my god. And why why I wanted to read this one is it is so important. For parents to establish a strong emotional base, so that their kids don't worry about them crumbling, because if your kids are concerned with your emotional well-being they they can't they can't go to you, and my God she that child so needed somebody to go to, and it breaks my heart that she has to carry this around inside of her or feels that she has to carry it around inside of her. You know, if you are emotionally fragile, please don't have kids until you strengthen your emotional fragility. Because kids need that safe, that safe place to go and to be able to collapse and not worry about how their parents are going to handle it. Um, this is the same uh, shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Rusty beds, Bed Springs. Gotta love that. He is straight in his thirties uh he qualifies uh being straight. I do have fantasies where I swap gender sometimes, though I do not identify as trans. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, deepest darkest thoughts suicide. I would never harm anyone physically, even though i thought even though if i even if I thought there would be zero consequences. But I have fantasized about hurting, even killing people who have taken part in destroying my life, career, and reputation. It gives me a sense of power for a few minutes. Deepest, darkest secrets, I have had very bad manic episodes in the depths of my depression where I lash out verbally against people that have hurt me, a trick I learned from when I was a kid and my older brother would physically abuse me, violence, not sex. When I've been suicidal, I've tried reaching out to people, and I sometimes think I was using it partially as a way to hurt others. Um, Deepest, uh, sexual fantasies, purely when self-pleasuring, gender swapping, and I even have had some weird sexual dreams involving being or having sex with a werewolf. Weird, I know. In the, quote, real world, I greatly enjoy just, you know, regular sex. A real woman has always been enough, and I've never felt the need to incorporate fantasy stuff into real sex. Um, And, you know, to that, I would say there's no need to ever you know, necessarily incorporate fantasy stuff into real sex. Some fantasies I think are cool to just have, you know, for when you're masturbating or, you know, whatever. Um, Would you ever consider telling a partner, close friend? No, I feel like the werewolf stuff is especially weird and off-putting. I feel like sharing that would be burdensome, burdensome or lead to attempts by a generous lover to try weird stuff. And I really don't want to do outside my own mind did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself i feel embarrassed slash ashamed by these things at times and feel most people wouldn't understand but since it is not an overriding desire and doesn't affect my real sex life i don't worry about it too much thank you for that thank you for that honesty and um i love hearing the variety of things that um that people think about and fantasize about. um, A, it makes me feel less alone, and B, I know it helps you guys feel um, less alone, I guess. Same survey filled up by a guy who calls himself Seth. He's straight in his 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts, suicide. I don't know if I feel sorrow for having killed Deepest, darkest secrets. I have shot and killed mul- multiple people in war. I chose to treat a more mildly wounded comrade instead of an emergent enemy combatant. Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you? None. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Uh, yes, if I had a wife, I would most likely uh, tell her. Uh, I, hope, I hope that you're seeking some kind of treatment for um, post-traumatic stress because that's a lot of stuff to live with. Um, and I'm sending you a big, big hug. Uh, this is from another very rarely taken uh, survey. Um, and very rarely does somebody fill it out in a way that that makes me uh, chuckle. This is from the Vacation Arguments survey filled out by Kenzie, who's uh, a female. And uh, 27, and uh, she writes, um, I'm sure there are many responses about rest stop fights, but here's another one. And there are a ton of great rest stop uh, arguments. She writes, innocently, after a fully consumed Slurpee hits me, I turn to my husband. Hey, keep an eye out for a rest stop. Got a sprinkle. Yes, sprinkle. He turned and half serious says, are you fucking kidding me? I was slightly caught off guard, but said, no, I got a pee. He quietly shook his head. You know, this is why it always takes our convoy four fucking hours to make a two-hour drive. The females always have to take a piss every 20 minutes. I snap back with, oh, it's always the females with you. Jesus Christ. What followed was a full-on argument about females in the military and my husband being a sexist pig who wouldn't let me pee. I will note that we did stop at the next rest stop where I did pee and returned to the car in less than five minutes while he went in and took a 35-minute shit. I think this means I won. (laughs) It's so awesome. Uh, This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself calls herself Marasha. Uh, She's straight in her 40s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I curse myself for getting caught trying to kill myself during my second mental health hospitalization. Despite decades of intense therapy and medication, I wonder how much more I can stand. I want to stand and scream until my vocal cords burn to shreds. I want to rip my guts out in words and shame the people that brought me into this world. I want to let people know that they aren't alone. I live in constant wonder that I'm still alive because I never thought I'd live to make it out of kindergarten. Deepest, darkest secrets that I am a living, breathing, thinking, functioning mistake My mother drilled that into me from a very early age. I've been hospitalized three times, been married twice, last husband is a gay, paranoid, schizophrenic. Father raped me throughout my childhood until I got my first period. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm far too ashamed to list them here. I'm sorry. Suffice it to say they all involve taking control. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend about your fantasies? Nope, I don't even have the courage to give my real name. It's not worth sharing. Well, by the way, I don't encourage anyone to give their real name in the in the surveys. I encourage people um, so they can share more freely to um, use a, a fake name. Um, and I, it says there that they're at the top. Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Utter hopeless disgust. Um, Oh my god. Marasha. I really feel for you. You know. I I can't imagine a more deeply abandoning environment than what you grew up in. You know, such intense sexual and emotional abuse by both parents. Um how how could you not um struggle to feel safe in this world and you are not alone i know it probably feels that way um my heart goes out to you and i don't even know what to begin to tell you other than you're you're lovable you're lovable and fuck your mom fuck what she said you know she was clearly a sick person who couldn't work through her own issues and fuck your dad for doing that to you and um come join the forum and share and talk to some like-minded people and i encourage you i really encourage you to come do that this is uh same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself whoops he is straight in his 30s was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment never been sexually abused Um, deepest darkest thoughts i'm worried about getting married again and failing Deepest, darkest secrets, I know I am straight, but had a relationship with a man for five months after my divorce. I had such shame and used to cry after these encounters, but my ex claimed she left me because I was, quote, gay. So I believed it. I'm in a loving straight relationship now, and it feels great. I'm so unhappy with my first marriage. I started looking at large amounts of porn. It morphed into gay porn. I've recently come across uh, sexual orientation OCD and believe that was my issue. I have recently, uh, two weeks, stopped looking at all porn and don't have many thoughts about same-sex relationships. They have decreased as the days go on. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like when the woman dominates or likes to run their hands over my body. I also like the thought of receiving oral from anyone, man or woman. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Yes. Do these generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Yes. The man part makes me feel guilty is all get out. The only thing that you should feel guilty about is using the phrase, all will get out. And that you should be deeply ashamed of. I cannot forgive you for that. You have hurt me to my core. <laughs> I have to do that every once in a while when I see when I see a phrase. My wife one time used the phrase "fast and loose," and as soon as she said it, she looked at me. She goes, "Oh God!" <laughs> so for the last two years, I love to throw that throw that in there and say, "You want? Should we play it fast and loose?" And she just rolls her eyes. Of course, I'm 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 kidding. Uh, whoops! And um, you know, my first thought is, don't worry about defining your sexuality. We're we're all on a continuum and who gives a fuck what we are um be true to yourself and as long as your sexuality isn't guilt ridden, shame ridden and compulsive you know find a way to be find a way to be at peace with it and if you can't get rid of the shame or the guilt and you're not hurting anybody go talk to somebody about it well actually if you are hurting somebody go talk to, about it but um i hope i hope you can find a way to go easy on yourself and not try to Put your sexuality into a, into a box. Um, this is from the Happy Moment survey filled up by a woman who calls herself Dame. And, uh, her happy moment is right now I'm sitting at home stretched out on my couch enjoying a rare moment of solitude. I got married two months ago and my best friend has been living with us for the summer, which is great, but it means I rarely have time to myself. But tonight the best friend is out with the boy and the husband is at band practice. So I made myself a delicious bacon and coriander salad. I listened to the Amber Tozier episode of the mental pod playing. And played round after round of Candy Crush. I had a good empathy cry during the fear and love off. uh, In parentheses, Arthur, oh my God, those fears tore right through me. I took a wonderful half hour shower, pleasured myself, and now I am stretched out eating a bowl of vanilla ice cream with peanut butter and granola on top with a dreamlike pastel sunset view out my window. And I will be so happy to see my two favorite guys when they come home later. Yup, right now is pretty great. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. This is um, an email I got from uh, a guy who calls himself Benjamin. And he writes, "Um, I'm 26 and I love your show. I'm studying to become a psychologist. Uh, I'm halfway through. And right now during summer break, I'm in fact working as a mailman. This gives me a lot of alone time to listen to all kinds of podcasts and music, but yours is the one I'm addicted to by now. Uh, by the way, he uh, he lives in Sweden. Uh, I grew up in a very stable home, but there hasn't been a whiff of abuse. Um, oh, I grew up in a very stable home. There hasn't been a whiff of abuse in any shape or form, and I have many fond memories of my childhood. What did exist in my safe home, however, I realized in these past two years, thanks to a lot of therapy, um, or a lot of thanks to therapy, was an inability to verbalize emotions, especially negative ones. This has led to me avoiding conflict, what to do when everything is not a okay with everyone around me, and me not really having a language to express my emotion. Hmm, psychologist, you say. Why would that ever be an interesting career path for you? Go figure. Actually, to me, that sounds exactly why it would be an interesting uh, career path uh, for you a lot of time especially in my teens, um i felt emotionally numb like there was a kernel of whatever emotion i would be experiencing sitting at the bottom of my stomach surrounded and muffled by turbid water by the way i fucking love our european listeners whose grasp on the english language is better than the rest of us who whose primary uh language is english um I have never told my parents I love them, and I have had to struggle to find that emotion in myself. I do feel it, though, and they have never told me, at least not that I can remember. My relations with my two brothers, I'm the middle child, however, are deepening more and more in these past two years, something I am so thankful for. I just wanted to say thank you. I'm so grateful for what your podcast gives me. Professionally, I think it's a great way of understanding different conditions I am studying and will be working with on a profound and personal level. And within myself, the show means... Take a look at yourself. What is your truth? What is it you actually feel here, and what are you doing to avoid it? The stories you and your guests tell, I feel, are stories of truth. No more running. Just let it hit me. I'll just have to deal. And you know, you and your guests always show, it is all right. I made it. I am still living, breathing, laughing, still experiencing love. A lot of your guests, in a sense are on the other side and they made it okay and they should be applauded for daring to take that fucking plunge. God, I'm almost getting choked up here. Your show lets that kernel in my stomach breathe and sometimes it sparks, explodes even, and out comes colors and warmth and darkness and afterwards, I feel hopeful. I see life right now and ahead of me and I think, I'll be alright so touched by that. Thank you, Benjamin. This is a beautiful, short, little happy moment from Ali. And uh, she writes, when my stepdad, I think it's, I think she's female. Um, I didn't print out that part. She writes, when my stepdad said I could call him dad, I felt like I could finally have a dad and be loved. Love that. I want to Take it out with two quotes, two of my favorite quotes from Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor who wrote one of the most profound books ever written uh, called Man's Search for Meaning. And um, the first quote is he writes, when we are no, no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Um, and then the second quote is, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. And you know what? I'm going to throw in a third one there. Don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you are going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen, and the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. I want you to listen to what your conscience commands you to do and go on to carry it out to the best of your knowledge. Then you will live to see that in the long run, in the long run I say, success will follow you precisely because you had forgotten to think about it. It is so it is so beautiful. So if you're out there and you're feeling alone, I'd be amazed if what you heard in the podcast today doesn't give you some type of inspiration to to keep going. And um, I just hope you know that you're not alone. And thanks for listening.